0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Bridget English and I'll be your host for this episode. Today I'm talking to Adam Wyeth, an award-winning poet, playwright and essayist living in Dublin. We'll be discussing his latest poetry collection that has the very intriguing title, About Blank, and was published by Salmon Poetry in October of 2021. Welcome, Adam. Uh, first, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what led you to this poetry project.
0: Um, yeah, so as you said, I'm, I'm uh, living in Dublin. I've been I'm from England originally, um, but I've been here sort of more than half my life now, which is kind of amazing. It's a weird in between uh, kind of moment to be in in some ways. But um, so I've been writing poetry predominantly. My first book came out in 2011. My first collection, Silent Music. Um, And then after that, I was still continuing very much writing poetry, but I also started writing plays as well. And this is my my fifth book, my third collection. And I guess it was like, you know, rock bands talk about the difficult third album, and this may be sort of the difficult third uh, collection in that I wanted to try and do something different. And I suppose because of my interests in essay writing and and playwriting, I wanted to try and incorporate those into a book um, and really just delve into something. In fact, I remember I was teaching creative writing once and I was saying to the people there, I was saying, like, you know, a book, it can look like anything. It doesn't have to be, like, the, the books we see in shops all the time. You know, like, you know, we have the sort of the genres of the short story, poetry, you know, and the novel um, <clears throat> And not a lot in between, you know, but a book can, there's no rules on what a book can look like. And it kind of, after I said that, it kind of struck me as thinking, oh, yeah, that's quite interesting, you know, that a book can be anything. So I wanted to create something much kind of bigger and broader with this, but still be very poetical in its shape in the sense of metaphorical. Um, And and like I say, kind of incorporate these interests I've had in Celtic mythology and psychology and and that sort of thing. Um, Great. Yeah.
1: Thanks so much for that answer. Um, I think that's one of the most interesting things about uh, the the book is that it, it weaves together so many different uh, genres. But just to back up a little bit to the title of the, um, the book, uh, the phrase about blank actually refers to a message most of us have probably received in our computer browser address bar. Um, that means you're viewing like an empty page. So can you tell us a little bit about why you chose that phrase as a title yeah
0: well it it started off as a sort of you know you have these working titles and it was a bit of it was a bit of a joke really it wasn't gonna be you know and I just I I like the sound of it I like the look of it as well that it's kind of one word and you have this colon in between you know about blank and had a sort of lovely symmetry to it um a nice sound to it um, which is always sort of the first thing that attracts me, I suppose. But, he, but then just this idea, yeah, that this slow loading web browser, which is often the case, you know, and, uh, it's that kind of thing that is there that we all get and yet we don't really pay any attention to it. So there's sort of, so it took on that significance. And then also within the work, there's, um, kind of references to cybernetics and technology. And in fact, there's one part. Um, where in fact this happened only recently it didn't make it into the audio version of this book because it was turned into an audio immersive piece but in the printed version when one of the characters collapses um kind of crashes um my computer crashed last year and it completely like broke down it just stopped and this intriguing text came up and it had like all these um strange words just, let me just see. i mean like and it, so it became this kind of, uh what do you call it, found poem that I just kind of stuck in, except things like verbose mode, startup, optimistic warning, too many couples being created, chain mask mismatch, Darwin bootstrapper, um, optimistic dad, couldn't block sleep, legacy slip, unsupported client, terminate, channel changed, promiscuous mode made, Uh, you know, so I had all these, so that became a sort of, so I stuck that in the book, you know, so I suppose there's elements as well within the book of this sort of fractured consciousness, and I suppose surfing the internet, and I'm conscious as well, like I'm someone as a writer that does have, I know like you hear especially novelists who turn off the internet when they're writing, but I'm, you know, I have it on all the time and it's, you know, and I get distracted and I'm suddenly on Facebook or something like that, you know, and, um, and yet I use it as well as a resource, of course, for Wikipedia and, you know, whatever sort of stuff I might be researching. Um, so I guess it's kind of picking up maybe on this new state of consciousness we will find ourselves in. Sorry, it's a very long way of answering what it's called about blank.
1: No, but that's really, it's fascinating the way that, you know, you see all these different influences because you do often think of, you know, a a poet or a novelist shutting themselves up in a hotel room. I think Toni Morrison often, often talked about, you know, checking yourself into a hotel and like not having internet or anything. But it's. I think what really comes through in um, about blank is this this sense of being over almost overwhelmed by different kinds of media and different kinds of yeah. influences. Especially when you have those sections where you have you know words printed kind of over words or so partially covering words. But it's fascinating that that came from that your computer generated some of that like accidentally as well. That's cool. Um, So you've called it like you've elsewhere, you've called this poetry collection, uh, quote, genre fluid shape-shifting piece, which weaves together a series of interconnected narratives moving across poetry, monologue and dialogue. And you also note how your work is influenced by uh, your experiences playing percussion instruments and how you see this common thread between uh, playing music and imaginative writing. So I'm wondering if you talk um, kind of explain maybe what the through line that you see between music and poetry is specifically that you're maybe trying to establish Um, yeah
0: yeah well I'm interested in patterns of sound and, and you know how how the connections you know I mean poetry is very much about musicality and the sounds of words and all of those things that go together and you've got you know, poetry is connected, of course, to rhyme and it's the memorable elements that go into it. And so I was really sort of wanting to tap deeper into that aspect and of things that I find interesting in literature and, um, when it comes to style and music and how do you, I, I was trying to bridge that kind of that gap, I suppose, between not going too surreal and crazy with language, but while at the same time, allowing the music to be there but also allowing uh, access points so it's not kind of that people are invited into the work and and playing again with those shifting modes and I guess um yeah before I started writing I used to play percussion instruments um and the last instrument I started playing was the tabla which was only found only found out recently was invented by an, an Indian poet and the tabla is like the talking um kind of drum so so I do see that relationship between rhythm and um the, the musicality um the, you know g- that goes with language uh sorry what was does that answer your question i'm, I'm yeah what, yeah I'm,
1: that um did, mm. like i'm interested just because there is the audio immersive component did you envision that as part of your like process or did you was that something you had in mind as you as you wrote
0: i guess it came later it's something it's something like the first thing i thought about because i was First of all, because it's not your usual, like the normal-looking poetry collection is kind of usually page-long poems. Sometimes, you know, you might have a longer sequence or something like that, but generally, you know, you have a page-long poem and at a reading, you read a few poems and, you know, that's it. And I thought, well, how am I going to read this? Because it's like um, a much longer piece, you know, it comes in at, I don't know, it's it's over 100 pages and it's, you know, moves across. Even though I, I wanted to break this... This logical linearity in, in kind of storytelling—it in a way, it is a linear piece that you do kind of really need to read from beginning to end to to fully understand. I mean, you could pick it up in other places as well, but there is a th- kind of through line with it. Um, so oh, sorry, I've missed your oh, got your question now. How it, oh,
1: so th- it was that idea. Yes, reading. Yes, yeah, sorry.
0: Yeah. So then, reading. So first of all, I thought I was thinking of Laurie Anderson and what she does, which I really like. How she uses kind of voice distortion and then kind of ambient music. Uh, so I thought about that, and I actually got this voice transformer thing. And then I realised, well, I'm not a performer, you know. I'm not. I have no acts of trading. So I thought this isn't going to work. So then I thought, I wondered if I could approach actors and and uh, sound designers to see if we could do something. And COVID arrived. And so I, I reached out to uh, a guy I've worked with before, a friend, Cormac O'Connor, who did the sound design on, on my first play, Hang Up. And he's got, we, we have a very, you know, we, we have similar kind of cultural, you know, we both like Radiohead and we both like David Lynch. So we have a, a great shorthand and, you know, and when we're kind of working on things. So we started working together. And then I re- reached out to Owen Ferreira, brilliant actress here, and Owen Rowe, who I greatly admire. And so that's, it. so it just kind of started in lockdown. I was very lucky in a way, because it was lockdown, all these actors were out of work. So they were free, you know, because normally they, these guys, you know, Owen's and Owen are sort of top actors in Ireland. And, uh, you know, to, to, so it was wonderful. I was able to get them. And so it just kind of started like that. And, and uh, you know, and then we started Developing it from there, really.
1: Right, yeah, that's, yeah, it, it, I, it's amazing that, as you say, the lockdown kind of created an unusual situation because the, the actors are so, so well known, and Olin Fourier in particular is, is so well known for like some of her performances of Joyce. Um, mm. I remember her, uh, I think back in
0: River Run, the, was it? Yeah, River Run, mm. was amazing. Mm. Um, yeah yeah, the, 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 the yeah she's she's fantastic and she's like it was, it was such a joy when you're working with actors like that it was like because and she was like recording it on her phone and like she'd going into i don't know if she was going into a cupboard or something and, and but it was like it had this fantastic sound and her presence in the piece is more ethereal and otherworldly anyway so it really fitted with it and was in contrast to owen Rowe, who had a much more professional studio home setup because he does a lot, a lot of actors do voiceovers and that sort of thing um so but that worked. so all those things really worked. but it was amazing because she would just like send me you know she'd whatsapp me these pieces she'd done and they were just like just incredible and it was like so there was very little direction on my part you know because i might you know the first they were saying you know is there a particular style you want and that sort of thing and i said well look let's follow your nose first and, just, and we can kind of take it from there. But they were pretty much, you know, spot on with all of it. So it was, yeah, just a real joy to, to, to work with actors like that.
1: Right. I think especially it works so well, considering so much of the poem is almost uh, unconscious thoughts of two characters in, in Dublin, which i will come back to that in a second. But I wanted to just, again, maybe back up to some of the front matter, um, I was intrigued by how many epigraphs you had, because it's pretty common in some um, books, but I was intrigued by the, by the number. You know, had like Virginia Woolf, Italio Calvino, Franz Kafka, Clarice specter Spector. I'm just wondering uh, the, about the choice to include all of them and kind of how you made those selections or how you see those.
0: I'll tell you why I did that. It, and actually, because I know there's, yeah, there's a lot of it. And perhaps I had to cut. I, well, for one thing, I love connect, uh, collecting quotes and, and quotes that connect to the work um, but the reason I had so many here you know for instance, I mean the first one is Kafka talking about you know you don't have to leave your room remain sitting at your table and listen do not even listen simply wait be quiet still and solitary the world will freely freely offer itself to you to be unmasked it has no choice it will roll in ecst- ecstasy at your feet and then Virginia Woolf talks about the collaboration between the woman and the man before the art of creation can be accomplished some marriage of opposites has to be consummated. Um, so there's lots. So the reason I put them in is that I didn't want, and perhaps I should have, I don't know, but I decided not to. I suppose a bit like Joyce didn't put any kind of, at the end of the book, he didn't put any references or notes or anything like that. And so I haven't with this book. So the quotes at the at the start of the book are kind of, I hope, pointers for people who might want to read a bit deeper into it and see where some of the inspiration and things come from. So yeah, you've got a lot of modernist writers there like Kafka and uh, Virginia Woolf, and you've got a quote from Carl Jung. Um, James Hillman, this depth psychologist, talks about the alchemy of language. Uh, Clarice Lispector, um, you know, talking about death. And then then also another psychologist talking about the rise of the feminine. So there's a, a lot of those are sort of clues into what the book is kind of about (laughs) the blank (laughs) that it's about
1: (laughs) right yeah yeah, and it, it works i think really well with the the kind of setup that you create in the book between like you're i think you have a good sense of almost at least in in the some of the um the way you're speaking about the book is like you have some sense of what what you're trying to do or the philosophical way that you're conceiving of the the book but then also there's a lot of elements of the unconscious or you're really interested in the way the unconscious uh, filters through. So I was interested particularly in um, you've mentioned that you're like, you have talked a little bit about your process of composition before as a kind of like unconscious writing or speed writing where you, where you allow your unconscious to wander and then go back and put the, the structure on, on those jottings later. Um, so, you also say something about like uh, how it's you're allowing something spontaneous and mysterious to occur, which kind of reminded me, of course, of like famously like Wordsworth's uh, description of his poetry as the spontaneous overflow of powerful emotions recollected in tranquility. So I'm thinking about like where you see, or or also it reminded me of um, you know Yeats's wife and automatic writing almost. So I'm wondering like, if you could talk a little bit more about that process and maybe how you've been influenced by. Uh, romantic poetry
0: or surrealism yeah i think very much i mean i think for me romantic poetry and surrealism are two kind of huge points of inspiration um and so yeah i have this document on my computer in fact after my first collection came out i started it and it was called write rubbish speed writing and it was like this place where i would just limber up, you know, because in fact, it's one of the exercises that I do when I teach creative writing is the speed writing exercise. And it's a private thing where you just allow people just to write as fast as they can. And it's a process to just kind of unload on the page to free up the imagination. And I guess it'd be like, you know, limbering up before, you know, before you played a sports game, you'd have to warm up, you know, so it's kind of a warm up. But I was like, as I had this document, I, I sort of became more fascinated by what was coming through. And then I started, Using these pieces and, and 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 working on them, um, and yeah, and, and I'm yeah, I'm interested in those surrealist techniques, you know, of collage writing and what they would call automatic writing, and just kind of following your nose in, in, in that way, and um, so that's how a, a lot of the work is is produced in this kind of very spontaneous way, and for me, I suppose it's getting into. It is, and that Wordsworth. I've been connecting with that recently, actually. That Wordsworth quote, which is, which I've known for a long time, but it is um, that overflow of powerful uh, emotions, you know. And that's, I guess, that's something I'm interested in capturing in writing is is about the feelings we have of being alive, you know. And but perhaps the feelings that we're not so aware of all the time or that are there, but we don't quite know how to access. Um, and I guess this is, it's nothing new. This is what I suppose a lot of art and literature is, is attempting to do. But so, so it's about kind of, you know, yeah, digging deeper and going through those things. And there's a sort of, and again, this is a bit like music, you know, how does a musician, a composer know when they've got something, you know, it's, it's a sort of feeling and a hunch that, that there's something being expressed which is doing something you know and I'm and, and I'm interested in in those in those moments more than I would be because I, I would love to be like a J.K. Rowling and have I an, you know have the whole of Harry Potter in my head you know the whole novel and then be able to just write it down but that's just not how it works for me I mean I have ideas but I think if I then sat down to try and write it out the the writing would just get very I just get very bored and tired and there has to be something Going on in, in the writing itself that's kind of pushing me along and, and in a sense that I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm, so I'm following that mystery and I'm trying to work out what, you know, what it is. So it has become this, you know, deeper psychological kind of investigation in many ways. Um, and then dreams are very important as well. And that, that I've been doing more dream work recently. And so the way I wrote this was using uh kind of like dream work techniques where so if an image occurred like if you dream about something you then question you you try and unpack that image and, and its associations and memories and things like that. So I used the images in this in that kind of archetypal way. And that became the sort of method for the piece for, for kind of the through line to work out what was happening. And that was that was very interesting and sort of um <laughs> very revealing and um yeah, it was just just a, just a very interesting way of
1: of working on something, right? That's fascinating because I, th- I think that um, it's interesting to hear that that's that process of like uncon accessing the unconscious or like keeping kind of a more automatic writing or free writing uh, type um, method that is not just specific to this poetry collection but just your work in general. Um, it's, it's similar to, the, I think, the way a lot of people write. Some people, like you say, J.K. Rowling has a sense of where the plot is going, or kind of what, what she's writing towards with the whole of the the piece. Um, I was wondering the dream thing as well. So, do you, is by dream work, do you mean that you're like recording your own dreams, like keeping a dream journal type thing yeah, that you're working Yeah, I've, I've,
0: yeah, i start, yeah, started to do that. I mean, none of the dream work is in this, but, but, um, Uh, you know i have been writing down my dreams for the last couple of years um so um and then kind of you know using kind of Jungian techniques to kind of understand them you know and i think there is that you know it's a big connection between um dreams and and literature you know and and, in that you know so i discovered as well like a lot of this so, so you know it, one of the Jungian techniques is a thing called active imagination, where you begin a kind of dialogue with a character in your dream. If you wanted to un- try and understand them or, or, or an image even. Um, and so that was something I was kind of naturally doing within About Blank before I even knew it. You know, and that's something we, something writers do all the time, of course, because if you're creating characters and they're talking to each other, now these characters, if they're invented, if they're fictional, they're in your head. So that in a way is already a form of, of active imagination. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's, so I suppose it's being aware of that. And so it brings a sort of allegorical element, I suppose, to, to what about blank is, um, yeah. And, and, you know, i I guess I'm, I'm interested in a lot of those allegorical kind of elements, you know, uh, the story, the other story within the story as it were, um.
1: Right, and you use a lot of um, mythology as well. Um, You make kind of reference to the four parts of About Blank that are oblique references to the seasonal festivals in in Irish mythology, Imbolic, which is today, obviously, St. Bridges Day. Um, Yeah, and then Beltuna, the first summer, Lunasa, and Samhain. Uh, Do you want to say a little bit more about that structure?
0: Yeah, so it's framed, yeah, in those four parts as well. You you using those four major Celtic seasonal festivals, and so that was just um, that's that's part of it as well. So the book begins um, with Samhain, and you know Samhain, Halloween. is those gaps between this world and the other world. So it opens on that, and that's the Celtic New Year as well. So it starts in those things. So I was mo- trying to move through those elements and use nature in that kind of way. Um, and then the second part is this piece which is a dramatic monologue called yoga for beginners and that's in bulk because that's what we're stepping into now and it's very much an interior monologue um, of someone sort of working out their thoughts and I just thought as well I was interested in those sort of meeting points in in philosophy as well between east and west and this sort of yoga you know that word for binding together like religion the word religion you know and sort of so bringing back those two, bringing together those two elements and this sort of, you know, for me it was about going into that unconscious, going into that element that has perhaps been pushed down and sort of giving and, and seeing that rise. That's the sort of idea behind the movement of it, that it kind of moves through this invisible underworld and that underworld starts to rise and, and, and come up through through the book. So the voice in Yoga for beginners, beginners is the kind of beginning of that um, and trying to make some sort of sense of this, um, of the shadow, of the interior, of, of what this other thing that, that perhaps is inside us that we're not so aware of. Um, and that so that and that and became, that was sort of both a personal thing, but also then going into but Celtic mythology being, like I said, I mean, these myths, they come from the unconscious. They're all archetypal, you know, um, and... I just find Celtic mythology and all the myths just very rich. Um, so using using those aspects um, became sort of part I'm I'm kind of like a magpie as well when I work. You know, when I'm working on something, it's like you're on the Corviv and you're listening like 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 I picked it like when my computer crashed, that ended up being part of the book, you know. So I might be reading things and I go, ah, oh, you know, that that fits with what I'm doing, you know, and, and sort of um, and so that kind of works its way into the work, perhaps, or it might, it might, or it might not. You know, you try. Sometimes she's again. It's a kind of it's a musical balance and aesthetic that I was trying to achieve with the work. That you're sort of, you might stick something in, and it might, it doesn't sit properly. There's something wrong about it. You know, you can't just crowbar anything in. Yeah. There has to be. You know, it has to sort of speak communicate in some kind of shape or form and so it's so it's kind of and so it's just kind of finding that balance with it which is imagistic and musical that has to sort of work within and, and feel right and that can be interesting as well because then you're surprising yourself all the time and it leads you down other even if even if it doesn't stay in it might lead on to some other idea or something that you're kind of working towards so it's kind of it's it's trusting your intuition i suppose in many ways which again like you say it's nothing new in creativity i mean Pinter worked very much like this you know he was so and yet he wouldn't use any of these language uh, none of this language of sort of psychology or myth or anything like that but i find his work so mythic but he just was he was just very connected to uh his unconscious you know and he was able to sort of delve into those parts and, and eloquently express that you know through a language which just had you know great resonance and reach um
1: Right. Yeah, and that's fascinating, especially since most of about blank is set in these more urban Dublin scenes. And I think with with the structure and the reference to uh, Celtic mythology, it gives a sense that there of the underlying structures and the underlying beliefs maybe that are uh, underneath urban Yeah, landscapes
0: and Particularly in Ireland, there's there's a like Dean Shanakus is this uh, part of this sort of Uh, literature from Irish mythology and it's is the law or the power of place and so that became a big part of it as well with like Dublin and and what you know Dublin is uh you know dark pool it means and so all those things take all I'm interested in the etymology of words and all those things and so all of that feeds into the the politics of the place and what does that do to the culture and the character and the history and all, all those things and the island where it's lost its native language and yet it's, it's a ghost, it haunts everything as well. It's got its colonial past, and the troubles, and all these different things that work its way into um, a cultural identity.
1: Right. And since you bring up all the um, Dublin and the references, the specific references that occur throughout about Blank to Grosvenor Square, Dublin Zoo, Dolphin's Barn, Rialto. Um, Lots of landmarks anyone uh, that's lived in Dublin or is from Dublin would recognize. Uh, Also, there's, I think, a lot of heavy associations with Irish writers like Joyce we've mentioned, but also got maybe more Gothic writers like Bram Stoker, whose home is referenced in the poem. So can you say a little bit about maybe the influence of um, Irish writers, um, either Joyce or anyone else you want to, um, bring in here or even Irish poets and I know there's a lot of um, poetry collections coming up recently that are specifically related to Dublin poets and the associations or poetic depictions of Dublin so do you want to say a word about how that might have influenced about Blink?
0: Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, jo- I mean, I suppose Joyce is an obvious connection in, in that some of this has those stream of consciousness connections. And I guess if you ever write about Dublin, someone's <laughs> going to be attached to Joyce. Um, and so there's, it, it, in many ways, I mean, the only, the main Joycean part of this is really um, the Panther, the Black Panther. And that connects both to Rilke's Black Panther, and because go, Claire goes, to sit, goes to Dublin Zoo. I've never been in Dublin Zoo, but Claire goes into Dublin Zoo and she sees a black panther. I don't think... I think they may have had a black panther there at one stage. I don't think they have one. But in this, there's a black panther, and she goes to see the black panther. And there's connections there to Rilke's black panther. And Rilke as well was very connected to the unconscious and those things. And that panther, that animal, becomes a sort of symbol. And then at the beginning of Ulysses, Stephen has a nightmare about a black panther... So that that's the connection, I think, to Ulysses, and um, I guess in this that Dublin is it, Dublin. In fact, poet Jessica Trane, she introduced the book, and she um, she said that Dublin is a major character in about blank, and I really like that, and because it is, and it is Dublin connects to this black pool this underworld this sea beneath well what is the sea beneath it's our it's our unconscious which is rippling all beneath us it's recording everything it's happening and and so it's like it's there but it's it's not you know it's the invisible world in many ways so it's it's trying to capture that part of Dublin so I suppose then everything kind of seeps into that and yeah there's connections to lots of there's things from celtic romance which i'm referring to there's elements of celtic mythology and there's sun and moon imagery the wrongs and rights of grosvenor square is taken from a bram stoker poem called the wrongs of grosvenor square which is this kind of (laughs) bourgeois political protest poem um which actually which is actually about the grosvenor square in london but the character in the play mistakes it for the Grosvenor Square and Rath Mines and that's another interesting thing with it with Dublin especially um, I mean Dublin was uh, the second city of the British Empire and a lot of these English names are still there on the streets you know and of course you've got all these Georgian Victorian buildings um so and in Rath Mines you've got the army barracks as well close by so it, it you know so you've got on so it, you know, even though Ireland has very much forged this new identity from the Celtic revival, you know, and all of that, it's still sort of very married to, you know, connected to its colonial past. So all all of those things are sort of feeding into the psyche of the work, I suppose, and, and literature becomes a part of that. The Celtic revivalism becomes part of the conversation in Grosvenor Square where people like Bram Stoker lived and Ella Young uh, lived, who was this um, very quirky kind of, she was one of the part of the revivalists, but she went out to California and really did, you know, she fancied herself as this, uh, uh kind of new age Druid. She dressed, dressed in purple robes and this sort of thing. Um, so she sounded pretty cool. So she comes up, but all, all those things, uh, feed into it. And then, yeah. And it, it all, oh yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's hard to explain, but look, it's kind of feeding off all, all that history. Um, of Dublin and and my, my experience of Dublin as well because I'm quite new to Dublin and I'm interested in that of, of seeing it in another way of seeing it through a stranger's eyes and and the and those sort of intertextualities and the textures and all those things that you kind of that, that are there I suppose and and yeah and and how it, the piece is also about how history haunts us and how we choose history and and what you know how we choose to see things and how that affects us psychologically and you know if the blind spots that we have and, and those different things that occur I suppose in in Grosvenor Square the the play is about a lost daughter as well and these the, the couple are painting their railings and they're painting them black another symbol and big symbol in the book is this rose as well um, and that. The cat is called Rosie, the lost cat at the beginning, and then you have these roses in the garden. Of course, Rose, you know, is this great symbol, you know, a love symbol of art. And and so that all those things play into it as well. And this lost daughter, and then this writer next door in the play, who is rather mysterious and rather quiet, but she's writing and how this disturbs the neighbours, and they're haunted by both their missing daughter. And also by this writer, there seems to be a kind of connection there. So there's a kind of ghost story happening there, I think, as well.
1: Right. Yeah, I think that's that's one thing that uh, About Blank captures really well. Like you referenced, you know, Jessica Trainer saying this is a, a Dublin collection in a lot of ways. And I think that it, it the one thing that's, I mean, I, there's the overt references, obviously, but I think you've described it really well in terms of the ways that you see all these things coming together in terms of like a haunted, you know, posts like haunted colonial past um with you know gothic elements of the unconscious and then also all the influences that are i suppose more on the surface of the poem in terms of uh the the ways that media intervenes in life or the ways that like life in a contemporary city is um constantly you're being bombarded with all kinds of sounds and images um so i think that that captures um contemporary Dublin particularly really well. Um, I mentioned also in your process uh, of revising, because we were talking earlier about you know, your process of composition in terms of uh, the ways that you describe yourself as a kind of magpie, collecting different snippets of, of literature and myth, and um, then also using things like your computer that's generating random words all the time. So how do you, and and also I suppose the unconscious elements. So how do you, just, when you go back to revise or put some kind of a structure on it, um, is, there, is it difficult to intervene or mediate between those unconscious, more unconscious elements and a more conscious sense of what you want to accomplish?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, it's it can be true. I mean, this was, this was something I'd never done before. I'd, I'd never produced a book like this. And there were definitely many moments where I thought, well, this is never gonna happen or, you know, I didn't know what it was going to be and it was me just playing around to begin with. I think my writing process is, I, I mean, to describe my writing process to being like um, throwing all my toys out of the cot and then trying to assemble them into some semblance of order. So there is this initial kind of thrust and kind of almost vomiting, I guess, onto a page and just, you know, and then... But then it's, the, it's the shaping that takes a really long time and polishing and really honing something. And, you know, that goes on for, you know, cause I tend to write quite quickly. And I think with poetry and plays, you, it's, see, a poetry, poem is more like a sprint, you know, and a novel is, is, you know, like a marathon, you know, you have to sort of, it's a, it's a longer slog, but even plays are more like a sprint. Like you hear like Tennessee Williams and Pinter and, you know, playwrights like that you could write a play initial flesh, you know, the they could get the first draft of the play, which will have everything in a few days, you know, and then it might be months or years of, of crafting and honing it. But you can write it quite quickly. So that's that's the sort of the process for, for me is is really kind of writing fast and just letting things out and then kind of going back and, and really working out what it is what's being said and, and just paying, you know, a, a lot of attention to the words and language. And that's what you, are that's what you're doing when you're crafting a poem, you're really, you're after sort of the c- economy of language, you know, not wasting any word and, and having this precision, you know, making sure every word is earning its keep within the music of the piece. So, so those, those are the details for me that are, I'm kind of concerned with um, that it's, you know and then of course paying attention to the metaphors and the symbols and and drawing those out and things because poetry is you know obviously it's a metaphorical language um so that that's my sort of you know my my way of thinking and writing i suppose and, and yeah but it was it was very i had you know huge doubts over, over something like this because it was something that i hadn't really seen before and that's quite scary you know when you're it's exciting because you feel like you're doing something different, but it's also scary because you're like, this could just fall flat on its face. But luckily you do send it to people and that was really nice working. I mean, actors I just find are so amazing because they love literature and they love work that is kind of, I suppose, open and generous. And although this piece doesn't explain itself, like I don't like tying everything up. I like mystery and I believe mystery is God in many ways. And, um, you know, both literally and, and, and the other way around. But, um, and so having the actors kind of enjoy it and get it was, yeah, you know, see th- those moments were, were, were really nice. Sorry, Bridget, does that, I'm rambling here. Oh, yeah. yeah. no, <laughs> that has, has definitely <laughs> answers my question. And I think okay. also
1: you highlight really well, I think uh, one thing I was thinking about when I was reading about Blink was the, the ways that i think because maybe your experiences as a playwright might contribute to this but the ways that it becomes a kind of at points um, like an unconscious dialogue between the the two characters you know like it's not and it, in some ways also all the other characters of the novel because it's uh, it's captured really well i think in the audio uh, version but you can definitely feel it and when you read it in the poem as well um, those kind the, the ways that your maybe ex- experiences as a playwright contribute to the sense of movement between voices. Like you, even reading it, you could get a sense between the distinct uh, characters, their distinct voices without having little tabs that say, you know, this person says this and this person yeah. says that. Yeah. yeah. Well,
0: that's great to know. Yeah. Because of course, yeah, with, with the audio, but apart from the play at the end, the, the first parts, there's no, characters you know it's just it's written as as you know as one piece um but yeah like you say there's within part one we Olwyn says some of the lines and owen says others but you know obviously their names or characters names aren't put into the text um so it's nice to know that still kind of works within the book right. the way it's framed as well
1: yeah for sure um also because this is bridget's day i thought i'd bring up some of the points in the poem that I, mean, I was interested in your references to uh in the poem there's like the rejected feminine there's also a reference to internal feminine uh so i was wondering what what you mean by those terms or why you included them and and maybe how concepts of the feminine inform.
0: yeah no family. that's well that's great i'm so glad you asked that because the, i think the feminine is is so much part of this book, you know, in, in Jungian psychology, in those terms, you know, you have the shadow, you know, which are the sort of repressed or sort of f- feelings we bury, you know, within us or whatever the taboos and all those things. And and then at a deeper level, you have the anima, which is like the feminine soul or the dream image, uh, you know, uh, within the man and animus within within the woman. And I think and then I was interested in the sort of the goddess qualities as, as well of, of the Kylok that we have here, the triple goddess, which is connected, I think, to Bridget, you know, in her pagan form. She's now canonized as Saint Bridget, but she was a pagan goddess before she was ever Christianized. Um, and yeah. And so, so then I, I guess the deeper part of the shadow was what I was kind of following in this. And I think it was that feminine, um, rise of kind of, voice and consciousness and spirit which I saw sort of coming through um and I just wanted to go deeper into that and deeper and you know that was a real kind of personal journey as well in many ways I've discovered with the book that it 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 only hit me after the book after I sort of sent it off finally the final proofs to the publishers quite how personal it was as well and it sort of in the, in that psychological element, in that me being a man and being what cut off from some feminine part within me, even though I've you know I've, I'm not a sort of macho man, I'm not big into those kind of sports, and so I've always I've always considered myself to be quite connected to my feminine you know, side, um, and yet um, I realised I really wasn't in many ways, and so the book became a real personal journey, I think in that way, and I think there's a collective element as well. I mean, it's interesting that it is Bridget's day to day. And it's now for the first time being recognised as a national holiday in Ireland, um, you know, and I think there is this real, you know, we you know we have this term toxic masculinity and we've seen some of the, you know, a lot of the damage of certain male individuals of late and all all, all the time. I mean, it always strikes me, it's like, it's always men at war, isn't it? You know, and it's, 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 it's men who are causing so much destruction, you know, um, and so I'm interested in those feminine principles i suppose and what and i think jung was really onto something with with the anima and and that and it's natural as well like if you you know you spend the first half of your life certainly kind of you know becoming yourself becoming your your ego identity in many ways and that means so you naturally push down as a man the more feminine parts of yourself um if you identify as that or whatever um and and so you know, and so the second part of life, in in sort of union terms, is that you start to discover uh, those those other aspects of the self. You know, um, so I'm not sure if any of this makes sense, but so all of those all of those things are sort of playing into it, and then and then I make those connections as well with with Celtic mythology. Um, you know, Jung uses so he sees like four developments of of young of anima development and the first is like adam and eve and that could be seen in part one because the narrator creates stephen and claire so there's like a creation myth there and then you have within that there's uh, a guy who um, is inspired when he sees a woman on the bus and he's inspired to write poetry so the the muse is working within that helen of troy is like the second you know second uh kind of Jungian principle and then the third you have Mary, Mother Mary, Christ's, you know, Jesus' mother um, and that's represented in Yoga for Beginners and then the fourth development is Sophia who represents yes, the wisdom of Sophia and she represents consciousness and that's seen I think within the writer who is and I see it as a sort of she's rising out of this patriarchal world and there's the, there's the father who's very haunted and he's trying to hold on to this rational way of being and yet he's completely haunted by this rejected feminine and she's just quietly there. And I was really interested that you could have, cause I know, you know, we talk about people being silenced and how women have been silenced for, for centuries. Um, but the, what the character has in this is that you can have an, an, a silence, which is, has a power to it and, and, and as the writer perhaps has a power, someone who could be sitting quietly and thinking and writing and actually doesn't engage with the debate on on his terms. And I was interested in, and how that could drive him crazy. I remember Stephen Fry, I'm going off here, but I remember Stephen Fry talking about Trump and he said the best thing we could do is pay him no attention because then... He wouldn't, because it's like he said he was like a monster. It's like the more you talk about him, he's just growing. You know, it's like you're giving him food and that's how you feed his ego. Now, of course, we had to talk about because the president of the United States, you can't, but I thought that was like, and there was, and I could see that because I, I actually, and I got often quite political, but I posted nothing about Trump because I, I just thought he was, it was so, you know, it was just so wrong on so many levels that it was just like, I can't even, it's not even worth engaging with. And that's not to turn off and be apolitical i mean i was deeply troubled by both brexit and um and trump not because you know yes we have democracy everyone should have their say and it's not you know that and i think that's really important and um you know but it was it was the this lurch to the right and how the media played into that and the parallels i saw between sort of 1930s europe and what was happening here was you know was concerning you know um Anyway, I've gone way off now, yeah. but there you are.
1: Oh <laughs> well, yeah, I love the it all—it all came together at the end. When we brought in politics, <laughs> and that idea—I think of like the silenced feminine. That really, I think, even the trajectory you kind of describe—the development throughout the poem and the different stages of the feminine—comes through, but not like overtly. I think it's—it's it's a very like subtle thing that really, you know, animates and, and I think brings out some of the, I mean, even the the Trump things that you were saying, you know, the, the kind of the way that uh, about Blank is, is interested in the, the silences or, or like amplifying in some ways the, the unspoken or the silences of, of particularly of city life and of urban life. Mm. Yeah. Um, so how do you feel about um, maybe ending, uh, it's been great chatting to you, but maybe we could end yeah. with a Little reading. Okay.
0: The books. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite hard to read from because it's quite large pieces. But then, I mean, the, well, first of all, the po- the whole collection is, um, or book, is book ended with these two poems. One's called Untitled, which is about an emigre who's just arrived to Dublin. Um, and then it ends on a poem um, about Rumi and about his great relationship he had with his. Uh, mentor and then losing him and then kind of finding his own voice and becoming a whirling dervish um, and this you know extraordinary mystic as, as we know him um, but in the middle there's a piece actually the end of part one and I've read this before it's beautifully read by Alwyn. Um but I'll just read this it's called Claire Envoy and, and Claire is one of the characters and Claire clarity there's a connection there and then Envoy is the sort of the ending of a, of, of a poem. So that's the kind of meaning between the title there. So I'll just read this piece, <coughs> Claire and Boy. I remember nothing but a mirror. I know it is a mirror because it hangs on the opposite wall. And when I stand in front of it, a figure looks back and moves as I move and looks through me as I look into it. But then it opens like a door, and I pass through it. I am walking inside what I thought was a mirror, but is in fact a cupboard door. I am standing inside behind the mirror. I turn around, so I'm facing the back of the mirror. I hear footsteps outside. They grow in size, then stop. They too must be looking in the mirror now. They are looking in the mirror at themselves in the mirror with me looking back behind the mirror. They walk forwards, I walk back. The door opens and they come inside the mirror. I feel their tired breath on me. I squint to find their eyes, but there is no light, only the smell of must. I feel about for the dark corners, but my legs give way. Only it is not my legs, it is the floor beneath. I am free falling from a terrible height. There is a faint light that is growing as I fall. The wind rushes past, the dark air grows thick as it slides into me. I find it hard to breathe. I see a hand holding a light and attached to the hand is a long arm and attached to the long arm is a torso and attached to the torso is a neck and a head. The head gets bigger and bigger, and then I see a whole figure is standing inside the mirror. It is dark, very dark, but the deeper I look into it, the more I see and the less I fall. Very soon, I will open my mouth and say something. So that's that.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much for reading that. That, that. that was one of my favorite parts of that. And I do quite like the, the immigrant poem at the beginning. Uh, but thanks I so cried. much for reading that. It was lovely. Thanks, Bridget.